Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. Then the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus is condemned at his trial in verses 1 through 15. He is crowned by his tormentors in verses 16 through 20. He is crucified with thieves in verses 21 through 41. And then he will be carried to his tomb in verses 42 through 45. The chapter began with Jesus being charged with conspiracy by the religious leaders. And then the confusion over the exact charges in verse 2. Are you then the king of the Jews? Jesus is accused of many crimes in verses 3 through 5. And you'll remember the custom of releasing a prisoner in verse 6. The choice between Jesus and Barabbas, the murderer, in verses 7 through 14. The chastening in verse 15. And now contempt. For Jesus, as the servant is handed over to the soldiers in verses 16 through 20. Not too long ago, Life magazine featured a cover with Jesus. And on that cover, you can read the caption. It it, it read, who do you say that I am? And if you were able to turn the page, you would be able to read the table of contents. It would include things like the carpenter's son who changed everything, the world of Jesus in the first century. And there was a section entitled, He Came to Save Sinners. And in it, there was a song that was quoted by a very famous American folk singer, Woody Guthrie. Some of you remember Woody Guthrie. Most of you don't. He sang a popular song, this land is your land, this land is our land. But he also sang a song that went like this. When Jesus came to town, all the working folks around believed what he did say. But the bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. And the article went on and quoted the skeptic and apostate John Dominic Crossan, who gives his take on the message of Jesus and his ramifications. He's from Ireland. He denies that Jesus is Lord. He denies that he died on the cross for sins. He believed that he died, but he certainly doesn't believe that he rose from the dead. He says, and I quote, If he was just talking about a nice idea, I don't think peasants would have been interested and I don't think the Romans would have been excited. He writes, I don't think he would have gotten himself crucified. 
So I do presume that he both said and did something. He crossed over the line from talk to action. I think what he was doing was creating a movement of empowerment for the peasants, telling them that this is what you must do. You must take back your own life into your own hands. You must learn to heal one another, unquote. But nothing could be further from the truth. You can't heal yourself and you can't heal one another from the dread disease of sin. Crossen paints a, a caricature of Jesus as a social activist who would be more at home with Occupy Wall Street or a sage, but not a savior. The world is largely divided over the identity of Jesus. There are, of course, those who accept him and there are those who tolerate him and there are those who reject him. But even the people who are willing to reject him usually throw kudos his way. They'll call him a great man. They'll call him a great religious leader. They'll call him a good man, maybe even the best man. The religious leaders rejected Jesus because he was a mirror who reflected the darkness of their souls. And Pilate rejected Jesus because he was unwilling to give up his political position and social status. He was afraid to rule for the truth. He was afraid to rule against the crowds. But the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers reject him for an entirely different reason. They reject Jesus because they think he's a joke. Have you ever met someone who thought that Jesus was a joke or that Christianity was a joke or that Christians were a joke? Hardly a week goes by where popular media or the so-called entertainment industry doesn't find some way to mock Jesus, some way to ridicule Jesus, some way to mock and ridicule Christianity, some way to mock Christians. Just a few weeks ago, Saturday Night Live on one of their episodes felt it was their duty to mock a Jesus who comes back to life and using the best movie voice they could Produce, they talk about a Jesus coming back and he's out for revenge. The problem? It mocks Jesus and it mocks Christianity. Rabbi Ben Heck wrote a novel a long time ago in 1931, A Jew in Love. And in the novel, he has one of his fictional characters, an anti-communist named Beaucher, say these words. One of the finest things ever done by the mob was the crucifixion of Christ. Intellectually, it was a splendid gesture. But trust the mob to bungle the job. If I'd had been in charge of executing Christ, I'd have handled it differently. You see, what I would have done is I would have had him shipped to Rome. I would have fed him to the lions. And they could never have made a savior out of mincemeat. Unquote. But it reflects something deep and dark. A mindset that believes that there's something really dangerous about Jesus. Really dangerous about Christians and 
Christianity. Before I came to Christ, I could have easily have been numbered among the scoffers and those who ridiculed Christ and Christianity and Christians because that's who I was. I was a person who hated Christ and Christians. And I took perverse pleasure in persecuting both. Hardly a day would go by when I was in high school that I wouldn't make a cruel and offensive joke. And in this passage, we see Jesus as the outrageous object of cruelty, disguised as humor. And so it continues, particularly if you've ever been the object of scorn or ridicule. Oh, you may have not have been ridiculed because you're a Christian or because you love Christ. You you may have been ridiculed for other reasons, because of your race or because of your weight or because of your hair color or because of your skin color or because of performance. And Jesus will now join and he will take his place with every single person who's ever been the butt of mockery and cruelty. And he will suffer alongside of them because he understands Jesus knows what it means to be mocked. And Jesus knows what it means to be beaten because people who are mocked and beaten usually fall into two categories. Those who put up with it and those who don't. And I come from a long line of families where if you mock Italy or Italians, prepare to suffer the consequences. Mark describes the place. The praetorium, the preparation, and the punishment awaiting Jesus. Look again in verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. We followed the servant on the road to Calvary. And the Roman soldiers must have heard Pilate's pronouncement. Remember who the Roman soldiers are. It is the police. It is the militia. It is the military. The Roman guard would have heard Pilate say, not guilty, not guilty. Let him go. Let him go. They would have seen the claim of the king of the Jews. They would have had him and they would have started to prepare the tabulum that was going to be erected over the cross. Here is Jesus Christ, son of God, savior, king of the Jews. The claim, the king of the Jews would have been heard by the soldiers They would have heard Pilate say, are you a king? And they would have heard Jesus' response. I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. Yet what do the Roman soldiers know about Bible prophecy? What do they know about Jewish messianic claims? We know that the Bible speaks of at least a couple of centurions who make their way into the New Testament One, of course, in the Galilee, in Capernaum, who is stationed, a centurion. And he invites Jesus to heal his servant, who he cares about. So there was at least one Roman who knew that Jesus had supernatural powers. But most would have seen Jesus as a Jew, as an insurrectionist, claiming wild things and wild powers. The Roman soldier would see this captive, beaten, bloody so-called king, but no threat to their power, no threat to their domination. 
The soldiers lead him away into the hall. And the hall is a word that was used to describe a courtyard or a large patio. And if I could take you into the praetorium, if I could take you towards the Antonine Fortress, there would have been a double wall. And in that wall, there would have been a huge portico courtyard. Here it means palace. The praetorium is the transliteration of the Latin word translated in its equivalent, both in Greek and English. It was a word that was used to describe the tent of the praetor. The praetor was the ruling official in the Roman government. So the praetorium is the ruling palace. It first started off as a tent and then it became any place where the ruler pitched his tent or occupied and exercised authority. The whole garrison means the full complement of Roman soldiers stationed in the palace to protect the governor, keep the peace. And imagine the whole garrison decides to join in on the fun. Read torture. William Barclay in his commentary describes the Roman ritual of condemnation. And in the Roman ritual of condemnation in the empire, when it was adjudicated, the judge would say, Elam, Duchi, Ad, Crucem, Placid. That's the sentence that that means take this man to the cross. Then he would turn to the guard and he would say, I, Miles, Expende, Crucem, go, soldier, prepare the cross. Now, you need to understand something. It was when the cross was being prepared that Jesus is handed over to the soldiers. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. I want you to put things in perspective. We already know that Jesus has been attached to a pillar. He has been Flayed, if you will, in verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them and he delivered Jesus to be scourged. The scourging has already taken place. He has bound him on a Roman pillar. They have stripped him. They have whipped him and they have whipped him with a flagellum. It's a a piece of wood that's about this long. It would have been wrapped in leather on the end would have been a bronze butt cap, there would have been leather coming out of the flagellum and the leather attached to the leather. They would have they would have sewn in pieces of lead and glass, sometimes sharp shreds of bones. They would have beaten him repeatedly. And as they would beat him repeatedly, the skin would separate. The muscle would be exposed. Sometimes it would be so perverse and so profound that literally internal organs would be revealed. Most strong men didn't even survive this. When I was a little boy, I lived in the Mojave Desert. And as little boys are like to do, they like to go out and destroy things. Little boys cannot be left unattended for too long of a time. So I would go, I would find bottles, I would break them, I would shoot them, I would figure out ways to destroy them. And one day I took a, a, a beer bottle and I broke it and the glass cut my thumb and sliced it from top to bottom. I still have the scar. And he would have been 
sliced and the blood would have been starting to coagulate. And in spite of this already cruel treatment, the soldiers are going to have some fun with prisoner Jesus. Now remember, I want you to understand what's happening. His cross is being prepared at that very moment. And by the way, when you experience cruelty, mockery, it probably means that something even worse is being prepared for you. Jesus said those who would follow him must pick up their cross. It's the instrument of your own death. Again, Barclay describes in the Roman Empire at that time, Pompeii. Some of you may have been there or you've seen pictures of it. But if you go to Pompeii, they've, they've taken ash and smoke and the, the, the lava flows and they've removed them and they've literally excavated a Roman villa from about 70 A.D. And if you go there, chalked on a wall is an ancient tag, a picture of graffiti by 70 A.D. They, they were, there was a picture of a Christian kneeling before a donkey that had been crucified and he was on his knees and the graffiti reads in Latin, Anaximenes worships his God. Mockery, sarcasm had already spread throughout the empire because Christians were considered a joke. In verse 17, and they clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. The soldiers are playing on the theme begun by Pilate. The outfit Jesus with a mock robe. They, they outfit him with a mock crown. One of the soldiers must have taken off their purple cape. And they placed it on him and they substitute the laurel wreath, which was worn by emperors. And by the way, the crown of thorns would have served two purposes, one to mock Jesus. And the other to accentuate the pain and the torture. Bible scholars suggest that the thorns are Zizifus, Spina, Christi. This is a type of. Of a plant that grows with long, luscious, green leaves, but they have thorns. Most of them are three to four inches, but they, they can literally, they have such flexibility, you can literally weave them like, like a braid. And, and if you're thinking of crown like that, you would be mistaken. Because the crown that's being talked about would have been, looked more like a, a hat. They would, have, they would have taken three, they would have wove them together, and they would have made it from the top to the bottom, almost like a skull cap, if you will. And they would have pressed it deep into his skull, lacerating the surface vessels of blood that lie just underneath your skin. And it would have begun to bleed profusely. By the way, what is the first mention of thorns in the Bible? Good, talk to me. Pretend like it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. What's the first mention of thorns in the Bible? In the book of Genesis. Genesis, we, we read about thorns in the book of Genesis. They came into the world as a result of sin. Thorns exist in part as nature's response to man's disobedience. There were no thorns in the Garden of Eden. And so it becomes a fitting picture, a symbol of sin, if you will. 
and thorns in nature are often found right next to those things which are so beautiful. Thorns are evidence of man's iniquity. And for those of you who have ever punctured your hand on a piece of glass or a thorn, you understand that it wounds, it hurts, it inflames, it festers. And think about that. Isn't that the perfect picture of sin? It lies next to something that's beautiful, but it perforates, punctures, inflames, and festers. And Jesus will wear a crown of thorns. So you won't have to. The Roman soldiers would have been oblivious to the origin of thorns. They would have been oblivious to the spiritual implications of their of their cruelty. And most people are. Most people have no idea about the Bible. They have no idea about Jesus. They have no idea what the New Testament says. They have zero idea. Of the types and the pictures of the things in the Bible. The Romans take something that merely symbolizes sin. But Jesus will take the sins of the world in his own body. As a matter of fact, it must have been Peter who was meditating on this particular time. Who wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23. Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we having died to sin might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. The Bible says that he opened not his mouth. In other words I want you to think about what's going on in the text. When they weave the crown and they press it on his head, he isn't saying, please, please stop. Please. Please, you don't don't need to do this. Please. Stop. This isn't necessary. Please. Please stop. William MacDonald writes, if they had only known... It was God, the sun, they clothed in purple. It was their creator, they crowned with thorns. It was the sustainer of the universe, they mocked as king of the Jews. It was the Lord of life and glory, they smote on his head. They spat upon the prince of peace. They mockingly bowed their knees to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, unquote. I want you to think for a moment. In order to wear this crown of thorns. Jesus will lay aside his own divine majesty and exchange it for human cruelty. He humbles himself according to the Bible. He becomes obedient to death. And by wearing a crown of mockery, this becomes the important point. Of the image. By him wearing that crown. It gives him the right. To give you. A crown of glory. A crown of life. 
Jesus reserves the right to press upon your brow the reward for faithfulness and love and eternal life. Consider the power Jesus gains by by wearing this crown. Consider the power he gains over human souls. Some are led to mourn the guilt that produced such great pain. Some people will look, they will see, they will understand. And they begin to understand Jesus not as a person with brute power and majesty, but a person who loves you. This isn't a person who's manipulating you into a life that you don't want or into a future that you reject. You see, you can love a Jesus who stands in your place. So tell me something. What do you see? What do you see when you look at the crown of thorns? What do you see when you see it pressed upon his head? Do you do you begin to see the true nature and the character of sin and the curse? Do you see the triumphant conquest and the carrying away of sin? Do you see the possibility of transformation or do you see the deep disgrace? And you find yourself looking into the faces of the soldiers Who did it. And all of a sudden you realize something. That they look exactly like you. That they are doing exactly what you have done. The precious head of Jesus wears the crown of sin. Because we've pressed it on his brow. He wears this crown so you won't have to. And what is more pathetically appropriate or deeply significant at the close and the climax of his life, because under the full labor of his soul, under the full agony of his spirit, under the full bitterness and reproach of men and devils, of cruelty and mocking, He remains the true and rightful king. And this is the ultimate irony. The ultimate irony is they are mocking the one being who is the true king of the universe, the ideal king, the real king, the courageous king, the king by his words, the king by his deeds. He's the king of angels, the dread of demons who he will one day order into a lake of fire because he reserves the right because the Bible says all honor and glory is given to him in heaven and on earth. And look what it says in verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. These same Roman soldiers would have said not one time, not ten times, not even a hundred times, but thousands of times throughout the course of their service, they would have saluted their superior. They would have saluted their general. They would have saluted the procurator. They would have saluted their centurion. And certainly, given the opportunity, they would have saluted their emperor. Hail, Caesar. And now in sarcasm, 
they lift their hands and repeat the phrase. You know, sarcasm has been called the lowest form of wit. By the way, do you know where that word comes from? Sarcasm? Sarks. It's a Greek word. It means the flesh. Sarcasmos is a Greek word that meant to bite the lip until you draw blood. Sarcasm comes from a root meaning you you bite your lip to keep from saying that which you probably shouldn't say. That's the point of the meaning. As a matter of fact, I want you to just think for a moment. They hold up their hand. They salute Jesus. I just want you to take their place just for a moment. I want you to stand with them. I want you to see what they're seeing. I want you to understand what they're doing. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? What is the single soldier thinking? What is he thinking when he looks at Jesus and he sees him helpless and he sees him powerless and he sees him friendless and he sees such a pretension because here is this man with his back open and a crown of thorns on his head, the blood coagulating. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? Are they thinking? Where is your army? Where are your subjects? Where is your kingdom? And so they give themselves permission to mock and scorn. Even today, kings and rulers and political figures reject the idea that Jesus should rule over them, that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the rightful king of their life. Jesus has no right. Jesus, where is your army? Jesus, where is your kingdom? But remember what Jesus has already said. My kingdom is not of this world. Because if it were, I would order my subjects to fight. But make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. Just because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world doesn't mean that he will not one day be the king, not only of this world, and not only of the next world, but of every world. Do you know someone who would welcome Jesus in their life, but they are terrified? At the possibility of ridicule. They're terrified. What if someone finds out that I'm a Christian? What if my husband finds out? What if my wife finds out? What if the people at school find out? What if the people at work find out that I'm a Christian? And the thought of the cruelty and the mocking are more that they can bear. And so they stay in the shadows. And they try to keep their walk with Jesus private. Look at verse 19. The servant mistreated, then they struck him on the head with a reed. You might think of the little thing that, that grows in the marsh, but that's not what that is. It's more like a rod. And they spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him, but... It isn't real worship. Look what it says. Then they struck him, tupto, to smite, to beat. It's in the imperfect tense. 
You tupton. It means they kept on. They continued. In the imperfect, it, it, it means then they struck him. And the sense of the text is and they struck him over and over and over and over again. And he says nothing. Why? The repeated beatings fulfill prophecies. Micah chapter 5 verse 1. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 and 5. And what about this? And spat on him. What, what is this about spitting? You all know what it is. And you know it's a sign of derision and humiliation and mocking But what you may not know is it's the exact opposite of kissing, of an affectionate display. When you care about someone, when you're committed to someone, you approach them with tenderness. You press your lips on their face. You take your mouth and you use it as an instrument to communicate affection and tenderness. But they're using their mouth in the most degrading form possible. And again, to fulfill prophecy. Haven't you read in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6? Let me read it to you. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And in Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 29, it says, When they had twisted the crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and then they took the reed and then they struck him repeatedly on the head. And so look at him. Look at him. His face swollen. Look at him. His face completely covered with spit. Because in a Roman garrison, you don't have just five guys. You don't have just ten guys. You don't have twenty guys. You don't even have two hundred guys. You have six hundred soldiers. Each taking turns. His head is crowned with thorns. And the massive bleeding on his scalp and the coagulation begins to thicken both on his back and in his hair. And it is matted. And look what it says in verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him. I I don't want you to miss that. Reread it in verse 20. They took the purple off him. They remove the soldier's cloak. Why? He's a condemned prisoner. In the soldier's mind, that purple cloak is worth more than a hundred Jesuses who are condemned to death, who are headed for the trash pile. They believe with all of their heart that the cloak is worth more Than the man who wears it. Not a whole lot has changed has it. There are people who will take. 
from Jesus. Because they don't believe he's really worth anything. Under normal circumstances, by the way, in the Roman culture and society, under normal circumstances at the execution, the prisoner would be stripped and beaten along the way. Remember what we've already discovered? He's already been flogged in verse 15. He's already been humiliated in verses 16 through 20. He has to survive in order to go to the cross. It's one of those perverse situations where it was their job to make sure that he was alive When he went on that cross. It's kind of like the crazy talk that you hear in capital cases even now. Did you know that if a person gets a lethal injection that they dip the needle in alcohol? Yeah, yes. Well, why are you dipping that needle? Well, you know, because we don't we don't want to spread disease and we don't want to risk infection. Yeah, you understand the, the, the stupidity and the irony. You're about to kill the man. Is dipping the needle in alcohol really going to be all that helpful? But we begin to understand something. That when they take the cloak off of his back, it awakens and reopens the wounds on his back because the blood has started to coagulate near the surface of the skin. But they take the bloody cloak off of him and they put his own clothes back on him. Do you realize in the book of Revelation, chapter three, verse 18, Jesus counsels the church to purchase from him white raiment. That you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness not appear and that you anoint your eye with eyesabs so that you can see and understand. But you begin to realize that this is not a real garment and this isn't real medicine. It's the type of garment that's a spiritual garment as you clothe yourself in the righteousness which is in Christ. In the book of Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 it speaks of those who have washed their robes, who have made themselves white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't it ironic on snow days like this you see The snow come down and it delicately blankets and makes everything sparkling white. That's exactly what Jesus does. The soldier's purple cape was a joke. Mocking his kingly authority. They placed it on his shoulders in mock homage to a mock king. You know what the irony is? Could those Roman soldiers make him a king? No. Who has made him king of kings and lord of lords? This is what John says in chapter 5 verse 22, quoting Jesus. Jesus says, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. It is impossible. It is impossible to honor God without honoring Jesus. Did you know that? A person who says, I respect God. 
I believe in God. I want to give God his due. You can't honor him. You can't respect him. And you can't give him his due apart from what Jesus has done. People who dishonor Jesus dishonor God. And the passage tells us a lot about human nature, doesn't it? Cruelty begets cruelty. Savagery begets savagery. And look at the expression at the end of verse 20. And led him out to crucify him. I want you to think. They've stripped him. The mocking is over. The preparation of the cross is complete. And he will now take the cross. And he will now make the journey. He will walk to Calvary. And it is perhaps the longest journey ever made by a human being. The longest journey wasn't to the moon and back. The longest journey isn't around globetrotters who have traveled the earth. And it's a journey of contrasts. We sing the song, the road to Calvary is marked with suffering. There's pain in the offering. The weakness of Jesus is going to be contrasted with the wickedness of of men. The tears of women are going to be contrasted with the torture of the servant. The distress of the disciples is going to be contrasted by this fierce determination of the servant to finish the work. He will take up the cross and he will finish the journey. He will go to Calvary. And he will die for you. He will accomplish the plan of salvation. Someone has said, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Because grace... And forgiveness and reconciliation is what Jesus has in mind. The servant is mocked. Again, why does Jesus allow that? To fulfill prophecy. Remember Malachi 5.1? They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Do you know what the next verse is in Malachi? You've all heard it. Some of you know it by heart. But you, Bethlehem, Ipaphrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from everlasting to everlasting. The prophecy precedes the promise. In one of the most unusual ironies of all of existence. And this is the irony. They mock Jesus. But he is the true king. You might have family and friends. You might have neighbors. Who mock Jesus. They mock Christians. They mock Christianity. And they do so repeatedly. The irony Every single word that is spoken, every cruel joke 
uttered, every perverse statement made will be shouted from the rooftops. And you can imagine the complete horror when a person involuntarily has the scene replayed in heaven before the true king of the universe. I think most of you realize this. When the Bible says that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, when the Bible says that in heaven there is a throne and Jesus occupies that throne, I don't think it's a metaphor. I don't think it's a hyperbole. I don't think it's just an interesting statement. I think that there's a real king on a real throne who sits in heaven forever. His suffering reveals his patience, his love. His forgiveness and the curse represented by the thorns on his head in direct proportion to them being pressed on his brow will become, I think, a type and a picture of the opportunity that he has to press a new and exciting crown on your head. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? When you see Jesus and Jesus takes this crown and he presses it upon your head and you understand that it is a crown of reward based on faithfulness and obedience and submission to him. It's the crown that he's prepared for you and for everyone who loves him. What's interesting is the Bible says That each and every one of us will take that very crown and place it at his feet. Because he is the king who deserves all of honor and all glory. But more than that, affection. Affection. So, one final question before we close. Are you ready to receive your crown? Heavenly Father, we commit this day to you. Lord, when we peer into the passage and we see what it says, Lord, we're amazed. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his patience. We thank you for his greatness. We thank you for forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you that the prophecies and the promises are absolutely complete in Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.